speak from heaven through your word. And so we ask that we would have ears to hear, eyes to see all that you have laid before us in scripture. These things we ask in your name. Amen. Go ahead and open your Bibles, if you will, back to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. As we are making our way through this opening vision of the Lord Jesus Christ that was given to John on the island of Patmos, uh, where he was exiled because of the word of God and because of the testimony of Jesus, and where Jesus appeared to him in a vision to show him his exalted and risen glory as the glorious Christ who now reigns over his church, who will one day return to bring us home. And we're taking a little bit of extra time on this uh, opening section wherein Christ has revealed himself and through this vision, his glorious and divine attributes, which are given to the church so that we might be strengthened, so that we can meditate on the meaning of these things, so that we could find hope in the midst of all that is coming upon the world, certainly that the first church and the recipients of this letter have experienced, even those who have gone to glory, but also what is coming upon the world, what is coming upon the world in God's appointed time, what part of that we experience is yet to be determined, but we do live in a world that is hostile to Christ, that is hostile to the truth. We do live in a world that stands in opposition to all that God calls good and glorious and holy. And so God's people have always, to some degree or another, in some location or another, to some degree of intensity or another, experienced suffering, tribulation, hostility because of their faith in Christ. We in America, we say this often, it's true, it's our situation up to this point, have experienced very little of that. There's exceptions to that in terms of particular people and particular situations here, certainly, that have experienced hostility. But overall, as a nation and as a people and as a church, we have experienced little to disrupt our comfortable lives, little to make us feel threatened. We've experienced little suffering, but that has not been the experience of the church overall, uh, since its inception on the day of Pentecost. Certainly persecution ebbs and flows, but we know that many of our brethren now pay a price. But beyond even that, the general opposition of the world, we see the instability of the world. We see the, the unpredictability of the tragedies that will come and the way that fortunes can change in a moment, the way that devastating announcements can be given uh, seemingly out of the blue. We live moment by moment, we see only what is in front of us and not even that do we see very clearly or perfectly. We experience life as it comes and that's just the part of man. That's what it means to be a creature and not the creator. We stand sovereign over nothing. We merely respond and act in faith to those things that God brings into our lives. That's how we live life. That's how we live the life of faith. But that is the joy and the hope that we have as Christians that nobody else has, that what we do not know is okay with us and we can yet have confidence and courage and all of those things because God has revealed to us the end. God has revealed to us what he will do. God has revealed to us his purposes and his plans for this world. And it really is quite amazing. You don't have to drive very far down the street to see somebody who reads palms or some which something, I just saw a commercial for that, uh, you know, where you can go into the crystal shop and try to get in touch with whatever spiritual or whatever. 
Men have this, and humanity has this innate desire to know what the future holds and to somehow be in control of it, but we're not. But that's the amazing thing about Scripture is in the words of Scripture, in the actual words written on a page given to us in a book, we have divine revelation. We have an eternal and an infinite God who speaks and He tells us things that He's going to do. And He has shown us repeatedly throughout the history of the world and His rule over it that He acts and He fulfills His word, that He is faithful, that He is trustworthy. And that is in part what, what Jesus is revealing to us in this vision and what all of Scripture really is revealing to us, but here in a magnificent way. Is it a description of the Christ who now lives and is in the presence of God for us? And so we're taking a little bit of time because we want to receive all that God has spiritually prepared for us in these descriptions. And certainly... The uncertainty of the world is, for us, in some ways, becoming increasingly aware, at least in terms of our lifetime and our experience. If you live in the Ukraine a year ago, you were probably little concerned that bombs from Russia would be falling on your homes and in your streets, and an army would be coming to overtake the capital of your country. If you're in Canada, you probably little imagined that the ruler and the one with political authority in your country would be enacting laws irresponsibly to persecute all opposition to his authority as a political ruler. If you live in China, you know daily what it means to be controlled by leaders who want ultimate power and authority over your life to accomplish their will at your expense. If we look in our own nation, we know there's an uncertainty of what the future holds, for we see that things that are bearing up uh, oppression in other nations, the seeds of it is in our own nation with little opposition to it, it seems. We see inflation increases. We see that things can come about unexpected, COVID, and how that would be an opportunity for many to achieve their hidden agenda, which has been there all the time, just lacked the opportunity. So we just never know what the future holds. But again, our comfort is not in our ability to know what the future holds, but to know Him who is in control of it. That God is working out an eternal plan. And it will end in the perfect execution of justice in His creation. It will end in the full salvation and the experience of all of the promises that God has made to us as people. And it will end in His eternal glory in Christ. But until then, we wait. And we must fight the battle. We must endure the sufferings of a hostile world. We must resist the temptations of a world that would entice us away from faithfulness to Christ. We are in a spiritual battle with Satan and his demons. And we must win and will win through perseverance and proclamation of the truth. And this is the end, the telos, the, the purpose for which God is revealing these things to us. And so we're looking at this in six self-disclosures of the Lord, that He is the sovereign Lord of revelation, that He speaks to His church from heaven, and we have those words recorded for us in a book by the Holy Spirit through His servants, exactly what He wanted to communicate. It is authoritative, it is sufficient for us. He is the sovereign Lord of glory. He is the one who stands supreme over all things. He is the sovereign Lord of history, which we will look at today. He is the sovereign Lord of redemption. And He is the sovereign Lord of judgment. And then we'll end with looking at the sovereign Lord of the church. As we already noted, let me 
this is uh, six self-disclosures that begin in verse 9. So let me just read the whole section and then we'll remind ourselves of where we were and where we're going today. Verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace. And his voice like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." As noted, he begins by establishing that the letter and the words which John are writing are not his own. They are not a matter of his own interpretation. They didn't well out of and are, they're not sourced within him, even though he is an apostle of Christ. They are given to him from the risen Lord and they are written in the book and sent to the churches. He is the sovereign Lord then of Revelation. Next, he is the sovereign Lord of glory, and that's what we looked at last week. Namely, that he is God King, he is the sovereign ruler over all of the nations and of his people. He is the God Priest, he is the one who stands in the presence of God for us. He is our eternal mediator, he is the sinless one who has accomplished the work God has given him to do. He is the security of our salvation. He is the Messiah that was promised. He is the risen and exalted Christ who walks among his people. ...who lives among his people. And he is... ...in this first... ...description of himself... ...that was meant to give John rest... ...in the midst of his fear... ...at his feet as a dead man... ...the sovereign Lord of history. Now as we noted... ...that John's response... ...though he was near to him... ...and walked to him... ...and intimate with him... ...while he walked on the earth... When seeing him in this new exalted state was a right response. It was a rational response. It was a sane response. He fell at his feet as a dead man. But then he heard those words that are some of the most precious words in Scripture. They are, in fact, the gospel. That we who should be afraid in the presence of an infinitely holy and glorious God are given these words, do not fear. And as I've noted before, those are, that is the most repeated phrase in all of Scripture. Do not be afraid, some version of it, or do not fear. And here John hears it from the risen Christ as he was struck with his glory 
and his own smallness, the glory of Christ and his own smallness. And so Jesus said to him, do not be afraid. And he gives this title because I am the first and the last and the living one. And in this statement, he is declaring in a more specific sense that he is the Lord of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. It is a comprehensive declaration of Christ's eternality and his sovereignty. His sovereignty as Lord of eternity, as Lord at creation, and Lord over everything that happens in between. It is, as has been stated in many ways throughout this description and is declared in many ways throughout this description and will be declared as we continue to make through, that he, though a man, though united to flesh, is deity, that he is God, that he is the God-man. So the first striking statement is that he is the... He is the one who is the God of Israel and of his people. And so he says, I am. He says, I am the first and the last. But this statement, I am, when in connection with these other divine titles and these displays of divine glory and divine works, is a statement of the divine name. I am. And we're familiar with that. It is a clear declaration of his deity that immediately, as John already reeling in the pictures and the symbols of the temple and of the tabernacle and of the temple and of the candlesticks and of the robes and the garments of the high priest and seeing how Christ is the substance of all of these things and hearing this title as he heard it while he was on earth, understood that this was a statement of God. It would have taken him back to the burning bush, to the revelation of God, to his people when he called Moses to be the leader of his people out of the nation of Egypt. That he is I am when we all remember that Moses asked him his name when he had noticed the burning bush and he approached it. He was told that he was on holy ground. And he was told that I am is the one who is revealing himself to him. And I am is the one who will deliver his people. I am is the one who will show that he is the only true God, the God of Israel and the gods of the world. Even one of the most powerful nations in all of the earth is nothing. And when he decides to act against them and to show their vanity, he will do so. And in fact, he did. He showed that he alone is the true God. And I am is such a statement of divine glory, of infinite power. It is so unpretentious in this sense. It doesn't try to defend anything. And God never tries to defend himself. And I think that's one of the striking things about that title. He simply says, I am. I am. I am who is. I am who will act. I am God. And there is no other. It's his covenant name. Yahweh. Speaks of self-existence, his power, his faithfulness his eternality, his infinitude. All that sets him off in the reality of his being God and him as the only divine being. He simply says, I am. And as I noted, that this is not the first time that John heard this statement, although he realizes it now in a way that he never really understood when he heard it while Christ was walking with him on earth. But his gospel is full of records of Jesus revealing the multi the multiplicities of the glories of this name. Just let me remind you of a few in the Gospel of John. He says, I am the bread of life. 
In John 6.35, I am is the one who sustains life. I am the one who sustains spiritual life. I am life itself. I am the one who gives life. In John 8.12, I am the light of the world. I am the truth, the only truth, the one who speaks for God, the one who speaks as God, the one who brings truth into a world of lies, the one who brings light into a world of darkness. In John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door, I am the only access to God, I am the only way to God. In John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. All of the other shepherds of Israel, all of the kings of Israel failed. God was the shepherd of his people. He was the shepherd of David in that beloved psalm. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the ultimate expression of God's shepherding love for his people. He is the one, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep who came to give life abundantly to them. In John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the one who will defeat death. I am the one who gives life to my people so that he could stand there as a man speaking to those crowds as the God man say, if you believe in me, you will never die. Amazing statement. In 14, 6, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but through me. In John 15, 1, he says, I am the true vine. I am the very source of your life. I am the very essence of your life. I am the very one in whom you live and you move and you breathe and alone in whom you can have access to God. The most notable of these came in John 8, 58, and one that you're well remember in an argument with the leaders of the nation, particularly over his identification as God and as the Son of God, he says this after one of the most heated and direct confrontations with the leaderships, leadership of Israel. He said this in verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There was absolutely no mistaking what he meant by that, and that's evident in a variety of ways, but no less in the fact that they immediately wanted to pick up stones to throw at him, and Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They understood exactly what he was saying, that he is God. He is not a divine being. He is not a godlike man. He is not an exalted one from God. That he is, in fact, God who revealed himself to Abraham standing in front of them. He simply said, I am. And that is the idea here. When he says, do not fear, he reminds him that I am your covenant God. I am the one who is the one who established the covenant with the people. I am the one who accomplished that. I am the one who is speaking to you. Next, he notes his sovereignty. He says, I am the first and the last. And again, we don't want to pass over this. This is an amazing statement to come from the risen Christ. I am the first and the last. This is yet another clear, unmistakable affirmation of his deity. And in order to grasp the fullness of this and the significance of this, we have to go back into the Old Testament and to understand the background for it. And one of the primary areas where this or places in the Old Testament where this is revealed is in the book of Isaiah. Now we're going to jump around a little bit there. You can turn there if you want. And particularly out of Isaiah chapters 40 through 55. 
Now, when we come to Isaiah chapter 40 and 50, or chapters 40 through 55, let me just briefly remind you of the context. The context is this. There is a change of address. Sometimes people more on the liberal-leaning scholars want to say there's Deutero-Isaiah, there's one Isaiah, two Isaiahs, actually three Isaiahs that wrote, because there are such distinct segments in the book. But it is one author, Isaiah the prophet, called to a prophetic ministry in Isaiah chapter 6, who looking at the big panorama and the big picture of what God is doing from his people, both in terms of the judgment that is coming, the salvation that will come, and the ultimate fulfillment of his promises in the kingdom that is to come, is giving three distinct addresses to his people at three distinct points in their history. And in Isaiah 40 is one of those shifts in the book. It marks a shift in the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah chapter 40, he begins to address his people, not as the people who are to expect judgment, but a people who are to expect the deliverance of the judgment they are experiencing. In other words, in chapters 1 through 39, particularly, he is addressing the people and he's warning them and saying, because of your sin, you are going to go into exile. The temple is going to be destroyed. You are going to be put into a foreign land. And it is the judgment of God for your sin. In chapter 40, he's addressing the people who are in the midst of experiencing that judgment, which was for a period of 70 years, is anticipated. And he's writing to assure them that that is not the end of the story. But yet their situation at the time seemed dire as a nation. It seemed hopeless to them as a nation. They were out of their land and Judah had been taken away in captivity to a land of Babylon, which by the time they would be exiled would have changed hands three times. But they were a people excited, exiled out of their land. They were a people who looked at their history and saw only failure. And the temple, which was the very emblem and the symbol of God among his people, lay in ruins. It was destroyed and in the most horrible kind of way. It was a judgment that came, not lightly, but under tremendously horrible conditions when the last wave of Nebuchadnezzar's wrath came against the land of Judah and particularly the city of Jerusalem. There was famine that led to cannibalism. There was death and destruction. There was the glory of Solomon's temple that was laid in ruin. And that's what they saw. And so then they were in a foreign land and it could seem as though God had forgotten His covenant promises that He had left them. The very symbol of their identity was made a mockery before the nations who assumed that they and their gods were stronger than the God of Israel. Merely look at their situation and you can see that. Their hearts were burdened of knowing that they were suffering justly for their abandonment of the Word of God and that they chose vain idols in the place of the one true God. And so then comes Isaiah chapter 40, a message of this living God to those people. And it is a message no longer of judgment that is to come, but is a comfort that is promised to them. That's how it begins. Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says your God, and speak kindly to Jerusalem. There is a hope that is given to them. And in revealing this hope to them, and there would be so much to say, it's hard not to just kind of want to read through all of those chapters, but we'll highlight just a few points. It is a hope that begins by God establishing that the nations that seem so strong are regarded by Him in verse 17 as less than nothing and meaningless. That He is the one in verse 23 who reduces rulers to nothing and makes the judges of the earth meaningless. That He is the one who created all of 
the stars and the host of heaven, and he is the one who will deliver them. And he does so in such a way that emphasizes the fact that he is God in contrast to the vanity of the idols that they feel so intimidated by and seduced by. And so in 41, chapter 41, he says this, Coastlands, listen to me in silence and let the peoples gain new strength. Let them come forward. Let them speak. Let us come together for judgment. Who has aroused one from the east whom he calls in righteousness to his feet? He delivers up nations before him and subdues kings. He makes them like dust with his sword as the wind-driven chaff with his bow. He pursues them passing on in safety by a way he had not been traversing with his feet. Who has performed and accomplished this? Calling forth the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first and the last. I am he. I am the one who does that. I am the one who calls for his nations. I am the one who raises a ruler to deliver my people, which in this case is the ruler of Cyrus, whom he will name, give by, identify by name to show that he is the one who does it, that he is the one who will accomplish his purposes. In fact, in chapter 45, he says, Thus says the Lord, whom he's referring to there in 41, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, His anointed whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings and to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. Cyrus was a pagan king. This word was given 150 years approximately before he would rise to power. And yet God is telling them specifically, this is what I will do. And I will so rule over these nations that I will use one who doesn't even know me to bring deliverance to my people. He is absolutely sovereign. And he's doing this in such a way, again, to show that he is the one who stands in contrast to what they are tempted to hope in, namely the idols of the nation. Let me just highlight this in a few places. In verse 21 of chapter 41, he changes the tone of what he's saying here, the direction, and, and he essentially brings them into a courtroom, a divine courtroom. And God says, let's, let's put two plaintiffs on the stand and let you judge before yourself. Who is truly God and who truly has power? Is it the idols of the nations? It is the idols of the nations whom you are tempted to trust in? Or is it God who has made his promise and has given you his word and has entered into covenant with you and who speaks to you now through the mouth of his prophet? Who is it? Choose for yourself. In one sense, it's not unlike the test that God put on the mountain of Baal with the prophet Elijah. When he said, call on your God and see if he answers, and then I'll call on the God of Israel and see if he answers, and we know who won that contest. In the same way, he presents something similar, but now with very clear language of a courtroom. And he says in verse 21, present your case, the Lord says. Bring forward your strong arguments, the king of Jacob says. Let them bring forth and declare to us what is going to take place. As for the former events, declare what they were, that we may consider them and know their outcome, or announce to us what is coming. Verse 23, declare the things that are going to come afterward, that we may know that you are gods. Indeed, do good or evil, that we may anxiously look about us and fear together. Behold, you are of no account, and your work amounts to nothing. He who chooses you is an abomination. He says in verse 28, 
But look, when I look, there is no one, and there is no counselor among them who, if I ask, can give an answer. Verse 29, behold, all of them are false, they're vanity, they're empty, their works are worthless, and their molten images are wind and emptiness. So God is declaring to his people what he is going to do. He is declaring with specificity what he is going to do to demonstrate his glory and to demonstrate his sovereign hand in bringing it about and to show the foolishness of turning to idols. It is essentially a call to trust in him. And then in verse chapter 44, in verses 6 through 8, he says this again, calling on this same title used of the Lord in Revelation. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer and the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Yes, let him recount to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation. Let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me or is there any rock? I know of none. And again, he's declaring his determination to redeem Israel. And he's essentially saying, your current situation and the power of the nation that rules over you has no bearing on my plan. They are meaningless to me. They are less than nothing. They are simply doing what I have commanded them to do and I will deliver my people. Why? Because I am the first and the last and there is no God besides me. He says again in chapter 45, verse 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from of old. Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry with him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. He will do it. Verse 10 of chapter 46 Or actually verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all of my good pleasure. Chapter 48. If they don't give enough, you feel a little bit like Job at this point. He says, Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver... I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For my, How can my name be profaned? And my glory will not be another. And essentially, he's reminding them, Israel, I'm acting not because of your glory and even so much because I'm concerned as much about your welfare as it is that your welfare is attached to my glory and my name. And it is for my glory that I act. And he says, listen to me, O Jacob, even Israel, who I have called. Again, verse 12, I am he, I am the first, and I am also the last. It is a statement of absolute sovereignty that he wants them to understand. Surely my hand founded the earth. 
My right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand together. As creator, he is the sovereign over all that he has made. What idol has told the stars to exist and sustains them? What idol spoke and the earth came into being? What idol entered into covenant with his people, declared what would happen and accomplished it? None of them. That's the point. Only the one who made all of these things rules over them and will bring it about. And the title that he has chose to give himself to emphasize that is that I am the first and the last. There is none before me. There is none after me. And that means in the middle there is none who deserves your trust but me. For I alone am ruling. And so he is saying here in this title that I am the one who acts. I am the one who controls the events of history. I am sovereign over it. I rule the nations. Do not look at your circumstances. Do not look at the suffering that I have brought about. Do not look at what seems to be a rejection of my word towards you. But look to me who gives you the promises. Look to me who will accomplish all that concerns you because my glory is attached to you. Because my glory is attached to you and the promises that I have given to you, therefore I will accomplish it because I will not give my glory to another. I will not allow my glory to fail, to be exalted. This is his glory. And this is the glory that is attached to Christ. He says, I am the first and the last. That applies to me, the risen Christ says. I am the one who was present in giving those promises to the nation of Israel. I am the one who was present, already identified with the Ancient of Days when that authoritative statement and title was given. And I am the one who exists now for my people as the risen Christ, as the Messiah. As a matter of fact... He says it in this way in Hebrews. Just listen. You're familiar with this. He says, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. All things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That idea he upholds all things by the word of his power is that he carries them along. He sustains them and he directs them to achieve his purposes, to fulfill his will and his purposes. He is bringing all things to their appointed end. And so he says, I am. I am the God of the covenant. I am the God alone who is the creator of the world. Remember that the very beginning of the covenant scriptures given to Moses on Mount Sinai was these words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Those are the very first words of the covenant. And they are the words now of the risen Christ. I am, and I am the first, and I am the last. And that should bring great comfort to God's people. Because certainly there are times, and indeed, is it not the taunt of the wicked that the church is of no power, the church has no glory against the might of the world? Isn't it like the arrogance of earthly rulers to say that we can silence the church whenever we want? 
that we will tell them what they can believe, what they cannot, and what they can and cannot do? Isn't it at times a temptation for some of God's people to wonder what is God doing if He's building His church and yet it seems that so many have gone astray and her influence on the world is so weak? And how much more, not only some of these first recipients of the letter, when they were the new church, the early church, in face of the mighty Rome, and how much more when the rise of the Antichrist comes and seems to exercise such dominion and authority. It is a reminder that God's people need that God is in control. He is the first and the last. Do not look at your circumstances. Look at Him who is sovereign over them. One said this, The expression functions in verse 17 to assure John and his readers that Christ is in control of the vicissitudes of history. However bad they may seem, indeed, he is the force behind history causing it to fulfill his purposes. Such confidence in Christ's sovereignty will guard the readers against despair and consequent compromise with the world's view of things. End quote. The statement then comes at the beginning of the book that is going to reveal the horrors that are about to come upon the whole earth. Who are about to reveal the rise of the pinnacle of man's rebellion to God under the authority and the rule of Satan himself and the Antichrist. The world is to be an open hatred of Christ and it's going to seem like none are present to come to the aid of the church that the rise of the wicked kingdom he will do as he pleases. He will kill as he chooses to kill and he will act as he chooses to act. The world will openly refuse to give him glory. And yet God will bring about his glory in Christ. And to know that he is the first and the last is the only way that we can know the promise will come true, that he will return in glory, that he will establish his glory, and that the promise that at the end of the age, the nations that now stand in rebellion to God will bring their glory into the new covenant or the new temple and the new heavens and the new earth. And they will bring their worship and their honor and their praise and their glory for the exaltation of Christ and God in Christ. And even now, again, we see the world mounting in its hostility against Christ, a professing church that is nearer now to the great apostasy than at any other time in history, and yet God will not fail. He is in absolute control. A passage we will return to at other points, but let me just mention it here, particularly as we get ready for the judgments of God in chapter 6. But listen to this. In Isaiah chapter 45, 7. He says this in verse, actually beginning in verse 6, that men may know from the rising of the setting, rising to the setting of the sun, that there is no God beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 7. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. When we as a church are faced with what is one of, considered to be one of the greatest arguments or hardest questions for the church to answer, namely, it's a question of theodicy. You're familiar with that term. We'll consider it later. But how do we account for the revelation of God as good and as sovereign in light of all of the evil that is in the world? 
And often the church feels very intimidated by this, and Christians feel very intimidated by this, and somehow try to get God off the hook, and there's a variety of ways that they do that. God is as sorry as you are. God wants to protect the free will of man, and in order to do that, he has to allow for this kind of evil to exist. But he never wants to violate the sincerity of man's decision to follow him and violate his free will and other silly arguments. God doesn't do that. He doesn't do that at all in his word. And while there is much more to say about this and much more that God says about it, He does say this at least as the overarching principle in terms of how we begin thinking this. I am God, there is no other, the one creating well-being and darkness. He is sovereign over evil in the same way He is sovereign over good in terms of His control, though His relation to it is different. Because God causes no one to sin and He tempts no one with sin and He is not the author of sin, that is man. But he stands sovereign over it and he makes no excuse for that. He simply says to trust him. He is the sovereign Lord who determines and limits the power and direction of the final evil world system and his judgment through angels. Let me just illustrate that for you briefly in the book of Revelation. First, we have, of course, the judgments that he says that are going to come, beginning in chapter 6, of famine, of death, of his people being killed, of great geological disturbances in which many thousands will be destroyed. Those are going to come from him. But listen to this, just to make this succinct. In Revelation 13, we have the rise of the kingdom of the Antichrist. We have the rise of the false prophet and the evil system of the world that will deceive the whole world and it is under the direction of Satan and he says this in describing and remember this very description comes from God of him who is the first and the last but he says this in Revelation 13 and the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads and on his horns were ten diadems and on his heads were Blasphemous names, and he goes on to describe the beast. And he says this in verse 2, And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And so here we have the dragon who's already identified as Satan, as the devil, as the evil one. And he is giving to him a spiritual power to this one who will rise up, this Antichrist who will give him great authority, he says in verse 2. And no doubt, Satan, who also lives forever, wants to exercise this authority forever. And he wants to wield this power forever. And he wants to have control over those who bear God's image forever, that he might defame the glory of God forever. That's no doubt his intention. But listen to verse 5 in that context. He says this in Revelation 13, And there was given to him a mouth, speaking here of the beast, a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. Well, who gave that authority and who said it at 42 months? Why not 41 months or 43 months or for that matter, why not forever? And then in verse 7 it says again, It was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. 
Who gave him that authority to act? Here, the giver of that authority is God himself. God had already established his plan that Satan would rise, that the evil world system would have control and power for this amount of time, 42 months. It was given to him to persecute his people. God is the one who has allowed that his people would be persecuted. God is the one who said the time is going to come and over the system that I am going to raise up and that I am going to use for my purposes, you will be beheaded. He's going to tell the church in Smyrna, you will have tribulation for ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This is going to happen to you, but understand, be faithful because I am the first and the last and I am sovereign over it. And I have things I'm doing that you do not understand, but trust me. I am the one who will give Satan his power and I'm also the one who will cut it off when I'm done with my purposes through him. And yes, that will mean the deception of the world but only for a time. He is absolutely sovereign over the events of history. He is the sovereign Lord of history. And again, it is the prescription against despair or compromise in our faith. It encourages us. And then he gives another encouragement. He says, I am am the first and the last. And then he says this. He adds it on to the end, which he'll... Expand on, and we will next week. But he says this, I am the living one. I am the living one. He is the covenant God of Israel. He is the sovereign Lord over history. And he is, again, emphasizing that I am the true God. I am the true God. Now this living one is going to have, and does have, Incredible implications. Again, and I want you to know the interchangeability of these terms between the Son and the Father. As a matter of fact, one interesting feature of John in both his Gospel and his epistles is that the the grammar and the language is very hard to determine many times of whether he's talking about the Father or the Son. It's a a common problem. Context helps, but... It's very hard to distinguish that. And that is because so often John speaks of them as one and the same. And even here in the very symbols meant to represent the risen Christ and the very language used to describe him, there is an interchangeability. And again, which is describing that this risen one, the one who was walking among you, is the one who shares the divine substance and glory with God. He is God. He existed in the form of God. And so here he says, I am the living one. And this very description is used later in chapter 4, verse 9, to describe, again, the Father. Receiving the worship of the living creatures, it says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. The eternal one, the living one. Here it is of the exalted Christ, because he shares in that life. And again, that's not new. That was already established at the very beginning of John's gospel. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Again, in his confrontation with the Jewish leaders, while he was on earth, while he was yet in his pre-exalted state, 
He told the leaders yet the same declaration about his nature and what he shares with the Father. Remember they wanted to stone him again because he was making himself, in verse 18 of chapter 5, equal with God. And then he says, if the Father's working, I'm working. And then he says this, for the Father loves the Son, shows him all things that he himself is doing. The Father will show him greater works than this. Verse 21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He shares in that prerogative with God. And then he says, not only that, but in verse 26. For just as the Father has life in Himself, even so He gave also to the Son to have life in Himself. And most likely in that sense, it is a reflection of that eternal relationship of unbegotten and begotten. The Father and the Son and that divine mystery of the Godhead and the relationship of the Trinity. That He has life in Himself that He shares also with the Father because both our God. And here it is. He is the living one. Even as the Father is the living one, He is that as the Son, even though the exalted Messiah. And that particular glory of His divine majesty and attributes are shining through even in His exalted state as the God-man. Always distinct yet still from His creatures and the redeemed. This is a further explanation of what has already been declared in saying that I am. That I am. He'll talk about that later. I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. Let me just note two particular things to notice from this encouragement. One, it is to say this then. When he says, I am the living one, it is to say he is the only true God. We take that for granted but how needed that is to say, because we, even as his people in the church and what he's going to address when he gets into his message to the churches, are prone to trust in other things as though they were God, as though they were able to rule, as though they were where we should find our truest satisfaction. Not necessarily in little statutes, of course, but essentially an idol is anything that draws our heart away from the worship of God. You're familiar with that. Just listen to how he says it and applies this in Jeremiah chapter 10. You can just listen. In Jeremiah, speaking against, again, the people who were prone to trust in idols rather than the God who'd revealed himself to them. He says, You are great, in verse 6, and your name is might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? Indeed, it is your due. For who among all the wise of the nation and in all of their kingdoms, there is none like you. They are altogether stupid and foolish. In their discipline of delusion, their idol is wood, beaten silver, brought from Tarshish and gold and Uphaz, and the work of a craftsman and of the hands of a goldsmith. And he goes on. And he says in verse 10, but the, true Lord, but the Lord is the true God. Here it is. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. To say I am the living one is to say you will be tempted to go after other things. But no, they are vanity and they are empty. I am the true God. 
Paul emphasized this same reality in speaking to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1.9. He describes their repentance in words you're familiar again. He says, you have turned from vain idols to serve the true and the living God. That's always the option. That's what repentance is. You're serving something that is of vanity, that is of the world, that ultimately cannot satisfy and will end in destruction. Or we're serving the true and the living God on whom we fixed our hope. In the psalmist, this was the description of God that elicited out of them a heart of worship and an expression of worship. Just listen to a couple of them. In Psalm chapter 42, he says this, My soul thirsts for God, for who? The living God. And when shall I come and appear before God? He uses the same, just one more, in Psalm 84. Speaking of his longing for the temple, his longing for the presence of God, his longing to see the glory of God. You remember the psalmist said earlier that everything in the temple shouts glory and the soul that has been made alive to the one who is glorious to the living God feels that deeply within their hearts, never as consistently as we want, but truly and longs to be near this glorious one whose glory in this case is displayed in the temple. And he says, my soul, in verse 2, longed and even yearned for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to who? The living God. And Christ says that I am that living God. I am that living one. I am the bread of life and the desire of your soul. And again, this is a needed word and a welcome reminder. Because his people will suffer and need to know that he is alive and sustaining them and ruling over the evil that seems to be so powerful. So that even when they are in prison, they can know the living one. Even when they are tested for 10 days, they can know the living one. Even the one who is beheaded for their testimony of Christ can know the promise that he gave to Martha that if you believe in me, you will never die. Because he is the living one in whom they remain in fellowship with, both in their faithfulness in the face of opposition, both in the consequence of that faithfulness, even of death, and in the promise that they will be with their Savior after. The living one. How we need God to give this faith. It is the living one that will help them overcome the deception of the idols, which many in the church will fall to. He'll address that. It means, secondly, that he is the true God as opposed to all that would draw them away. It means, secondly, this, that he is the one who lives to sustain and uphold the life of his people. Let me just give a few other ways that this title is used. In Joshua 3.10, the title is used when God emphasized this reality, that it was the living God who was going to part the Jordan as the nation of Israel under the leadership of of Joshua were to pass into the promised land and it was there that they would have to rely on their God to deliver the nations to them and give them the land that was promised. Remember they failed to do that before and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness because they were intimidated by the fear of man and the people that were in the land. But God says no. I'm going to deliver you into this land and I am the living God who will do it. It is that appellation of God that was meant to strengthen his people in the face of those who were greater than them. In 1 Samuel 17, 26 and 36, it was this attribute of God that David found strength when he was facing Goliath. 
And while the nation, the army of Israel trembled in fear because of this great giant and this mighty warrior who stood before them, David being full of the Spirit, David being called by God, David seeing things clearly, went out by himself, a small shepherd boy, but in the strength of his God and with his sling met this giant out on the field and said, Who are you who taunts the name of the living God? In other words, it's not me who's going to defeat you, but this living God whom you are taunting will defeat you. It was a name that gave courage, truth that gave courage in the strength of mighty opposition. In 2 Kings 19.6, it is to this that Isaiah encourages King Hezekiah when he is afraid of the army that has come against them. And he is encouraged that God will deliver him and he is the living God who will deliver them. In verse 19 he says, For this reason, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. In Daniel 6.20 it is this name of God that strengthened Daniel and that was declared when he was placed into the lion's den and the lions did not harm him. And Darius came and found him there and gave glory to the living God who had spared Daniel, who had shown himself to be mighty. As a matter of fact, and this came from the lips of a pagan king, when he saw this, he says in verse 26 in Daniel 6, I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom, men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel. Listen, why? For he is the living God and enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed and his dominion will be forever. He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth who has delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. It's the God, the living God, who will deliver and sustain his people in the kingdom of the Antichrist. And it's used in the New Testament as well. I'll mention these quickly. It is of the living God who has written on the hearts of his people the reality of the new covenant in 2 Corinthians 3.3. In 2 Corinthians 6.16, it is the living God of whom we are the temple as the church. In 1 Timothy 3.15, he encourages him and says, the, truth, the church is the pillar and the support of the truth of the living God. The church is the mouthpiece for God, as it were. There is no other light in this world which we'll mention in, in the description of the lampstands. It is the living God for whom we are to discipline ourselves for holiness and godliness in 1 Timothy 4.10. He says, because it is the living God on whom we have set our hope. It is the living God and His salvation and His glorious promises that we come to as the church in Hebrews chapter 12. A church, remember whom he's writing to encourage to stay faithful in the midst of opposition, telling them, do not be deceived by the deceitfulness of ten, uh, sin, and do not turn back out of fear to that old dead system and trample underfoot the blood of the covenant and count unclean the blood of Christ. Be faithful, he says, and this is the encouragement he gives at the end. For you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and the myriads of the angels. That system that you're tempted to go back to is an empty system and in the history of events is going to be destroyed not long after he writes this letter to them. And it's going to lay in ruins, as Christ said, not one stone will be left upon another. Don't turn back to that. 
Don't think in that you're going to have salvation. Don't think somehow in turning to this old system you will be spared from the wrath of God. Don't be, think that that is going to be your safety and security. Rather, it will be destroyed. Trust in the living God. It is the living God who is our salvation. But it is also the living God who is a warning to those who do turn to trust in something else. Listen to this. He says in verse 31 of chapter 10 in Hebrews, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Know that living God as your strength, as your hope and your salvation. Don't know that living God as your judge because that living God lives forever to execute His wrath on those who oppose Him and reject Him. Just as He lives forever and is the living God to communicate His life and His blessing and His glory and His salvation to those who trust Him. And so by this description then, he reminds his people that he is present, he is living, he is ruling, he alone is God, he will sustain them. And as the prophet Isaiah said in 46.10, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure, God says through him. And so he says we could render the statement, I am the first and the last and the living God in this way. I am the beginning and the end the sovereign Lord over all the earth. I am the living one who alone is God, who gives you life, who sustains your life, who is watching over every detail of your life and will accomplish all of my purposes. And that is ultimately, individually, the strength that they were to draw and that we are to draw from that. That He is the living God and the sovereign one who will accomplish His purposes, not merely in the big events of the rise and the fall of nations, but in every detail of the life of his people, whether in blessing or whether in trial. Let me end with this word. It's a word of application as well. It's actually a comment that one made on Isaiah 45.7. That's where he says, I'm the one creating light and darkness and so forth. He says this, and we can apply this to the description here of the word in Revelation. What the prophet is saying is this, is that if bad conditions exist in my life, they are not there because some evil God has thwarted the good intentions of a kindly but ineffectual grandfather God who would like me, like to have good conditions, but cannot bring them about. They are, they are, they are there solely as a factor of my relation to the one God. They may be there because I have sinned against his natural and moral laws, or they may be there because by their means I can become more like him. Or they may be there for reasons that he cannot explain to me. But they are not there in spite of God. He is the only uncaused cause in the universe. And so we rest our hands, our lives. We rest our cares and our troubles. We rest our future and our present. And the one who says, I am the first and the last. And the living God. And let us as his people never forget that it is this living God who says... I love you, and I have released you from your sins. I am for you and not against you. Trust in me, and I will bring you safely to your eternal and heavenly home. And with that, let's pray, and we'll have Mike come meet us. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, how we can hear it and know it, but we ask you to take this word and by faith strengthen and encourage us when we wake up tomorrow morning, when we go to bed tonight, when we face the week ahead, 
When we think about the future of our nation, when we have hopes that seem to be dashed, when we have longings that seem to be unmet, may we find our deepest and greatest longing met in you who is the living one, who is our life, who is the bread of life, who is our resurrection, who is our hope, who is our reconciliation with God, who is even now in the presence of God interceding for us, whose spirit we have. May we be those who are counted faithful. May we not lose hope. May we not be discontent. May we not grumble and complain, but rather trust in our God and so appear as lights in this world. Help us, O God, to see you, Christ. Help us not merely to acknowledge it as doctrine intellectually. Help us not even to have some emotional temporary response, but at the deepest part of our soul, help us to live in the light of this glory, to live in the freedom of trusting you and obeying you. Help us to put away sin and to put on righteousness. Help us to, in every way, have your word wash over us by the work of the Spirit in us, to keep us pure as we await that great consummation of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Keep us encouraged. And for those, as we always remember, Lord, who do not know you, may this be the day of their salvation. And we pray this, our Lord Jesus. And we do pray, our Lord, for your people who are in the Ukraine right now. And we know there's many suffering all over the world. But we would pray that you would sustain them in hope. We know that your people in the midst of displaced crowds, in the midst of bombs and uncertainties, in the midst of soldiers invading their land, that you have your people that are ministering to those who are living in fear. May they be sustained with this truth and communicate it as a message of hope for those who will trust in you. May you protect your people. May you uphold them. And may you bring about good through evil. And only you, the sovereign one, can do that. And it's to you we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. And Michael, lead us in closing.